You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Welcome back to The Catalyst, everyone. I am your host, Samantha Chris, and with me today is retired hostage negotiator, international peacekeeper, and detective Paul Nadeau. Since retiring, Paul speaks to audiences across the world on the topics of mental health, motivation, negotiation, and conflict resolution. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Take Control of Your Life, which helps readers dealing with anxiety and depression and enables them to rescue themselves and live the life they deserve. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. Paul, before you became a mental health strategist, your life was akin to a Hollywood blockbuster movie. What (laughs) was the life of a hostage negotiator like? Well, you know what? It was um, unpredictable. Uh, There's so many things that I've done in the past, but the life of a hostage negotiator is uh, one that brings opportunity to help people. And that's what I was good at doing, um, just reaching and connecting with people. And when I became a hostage negotiator, it was a proud moment for me because I knew that it was something that I could add to my toolkit and just uh, be of more service to people. When people think of hostage negotiators, they think, you know, blockbuster movies. It's always going to be somebody in a bank or something like that and or uh, a robbery that went wrong. Um, when in fact, it's, it is similar to that. And a lot of it is uh, desperate people, though, uh, that find themselves in a situation where things have gone wrong in a domestic situation. They, they don't know how they got to where they got. Or uh, 95% of the negotiations we did were more um, negotiations with people who had uh, threatened to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was really people in conflict and, and uh, the opportunity to save them. Wow. And so when we think negotiators, like you mentioned, we we have these movie scenarios come to Mm. mind. Is that, was any part of that what allured you into, you know, wanting to go into negotiation specifically? I mean, the desire to help people you mentioned was ever present, but I would say typically a lot of us can relate that we have this desire to help and hostage negotiation isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not, is it? Um, yeah, I, I don't know of anybody who said it uh, actually comes to them that way. I was working as a police detective, and at the time I was working in the sexual assault and child abuse unit. And I had discovered uh, very early on in my career that I could really connect with people. I could mm. get down and just get them to open up. And when I talk uh, about this, it was not only uh, with the victims. I could get uh, people who had committed crimes to open up. And it was, it was, it is a gift, I think. And it is a way. It's a process. It, it's a way of reaching out and connecting with people. And I knew I was very good at it. So. One day I was at my office when uh, a announcement came across my desk saying there's a position open in hostage negotiations. And I thought, yeah, now that sounds cool. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to put in for that. And uh, I was encouraged to do so also by my supervisor. 
uh, who at one point, we're going to talk about this, but uh, we were in conflict at one point before he became my supervisor, but uh, he encouraged me to put it in and I wanted to put it in. And then I got interviewed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, who put you through a number of tests to determine whether or not you're a good candidate and you're suited to be a hostage negotiator. And I passed. And then I went into some very um, heavy training uh, for several months at the Ottawa uh, RCMP Academy uh, to learn how to do it well. Wow. Okay. We're going to get to that conflict in a second. <laughs> I want to rewind the clock a little bit. Take us back to the beginning. I mean, you knew that you wanted to get into this line of work, whether it was the police force or detective work from a young age. And when many boys are dreaming of becoming astronauts and superheroes, you dreamt that you would grow up to arrest people like your father. I did. And uh, yes, um, you have really done your research. Wow. I have. Um, you have. I'm so impressed. And thank you, Sam, for that. Yeah, I grew up in a very uh, violent home. My father was uh, an alcoholic and a very violent alcoholic. And he used to beat me and my brother and my mother up all the time. And the beatings were quite severe. And I remember after one beating, I think I was about seven years old and I was still on the floor, you know, just bruised. And I remember looking up at my dad and just thinking to myself, one day, one day, when I get big, I'm going to arrest you and I'm going to arrest people like you. And that stuck with me. And uh, it was something that just built in me. I started to play the role of a detective. I started to believe that I was a detective. Uh, I had a friend and he and I made these, you know, badges out of leather and we became these police officers. And my father never gave me the opportunity, however, to arrest him because he killed himself when I was 17. Mm. But by then, though the desire and the passion to help others uh, was, was, running through my blood. And when I became 21, I applied to become a police officer and uh, I was hired. And so the rest was kind of like history. It was, uh, it was, uh, I went through a lot. Yeah. And when I became that police officer, it was an accomplishment for me because um, I grew up not believing in myself because I acted out in school. Uh, I couldn't act out at home. So I brought this bad boy image into my classes in grade school. And I was just a, a little bugger. And uh, I, I was constantly failing uh, because I couldn't retain any information. And I, I think I fought it. I just fought learning. And as a consequence of that, being a bad boy in grade school, I was bullied and um, not very well liked by my classmates. And it wasn't until grade seven, I had a moment where um, pretty much everything changed. And it was a teacher of mine who had uh, announced that there was going to be a test. And he said, I expect everyone in the classroom to pass this test, except for you, Nadeau. He says, I already know you're going to fail. Wow. Yeah. And at that time, uh, I for some reason was severely uh, embarrassed, uh, like I had never been embarrassed before. And I started liking girls and I was hoping, you know, that they liked me, but I realized that um, I was a failure and I, I didn't believe in myself and neither did my teachers. And so when somebody constantly tells you that you are not going to amount to anything, which is something I heard quite a bit of, you start to believe it. And then you start to pattern your life uh, on these false beliefs. But when that teacher challenged me that day, and I call it a challenge, 
Uh, I don't know if he knew what he was doing, but for the first time I went back home, Sam, and I, I did something I didn't know how to do. I studied. I locked myself in my room and I started looking over my notes and not knowing how to study. I didn't have any good habits of studying, but the material um, seemed to make sense to me. And when I wrote that test, as was customary in his class, he would call the student after he graded the papers, he would call the student with the lowest mark in the class to uh, pick their paper up, to walk the walk of shame and pick up their paper. And then he would go to the second lowest, third lowest, and up to the highest. Mm. And I was conditioned to always be the first to get up and pick up my paper. And on this particular day, uh, after he graded the papers, I wasn't the first, I wasn't the second, I wasn't the fifth, I wasn't the 10th. And by the time he had reached half the class, most of the class was looking at me wondering, why aren't you up there? I, had no, <laughs> I, did, I, got, I did not, I, I would kind of looked at them and I thought, I don't know, I'm shrugging my shoulders, eh? They got this look of, I, where are you Nadeau? Why aren't you up there? And I'm thinking, I have no idea. Well, he called my cousin up and I was the next one to be called up. I had the second highest mark in the classroom. Wow. That was a defining moment for me, Sam. I realized then that uh, my conditioning uh, of not believing in myself had to change. And from that moment on, it did change. And I went on to accomplish some pretty amazing things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, your work has saved countless lives. And now you're saving people in a different way. You, you kind of scratch the surface on that moment where you consciously made the choice to pivot in grade seven. You've gone on to study the science of achievement and self-worth for now over three decades, and you've dedicated this next chapter of your life and career to helping people master the hostage within. What does that mean? Well, we are our worst enemies at times. We have this little voice in our heads uh, that tell us that we're not good enough, not good looking enough, not worthy enough. We can't possibly ask for a raise. We can't possibly ask for a job. I can't possibly ask that girl out for a date. She's going to say no. So we self-sabotage ourselves. We uh, create these stories in our head that kind of put us down. And when we are put down, it's like locking ourselves in a cage of our own making. We are the ones who create these cages and put ourselves in there and say, you know what, Paul, you, you're not going to move forward because you will never achieve what it is that you're after. So we are taken hostage by ourselves. We become hostages to ourselves when we can actually be the ones who unlock the keys as well. And it is the way that you talk to yourself, that self-talk. And a lot of people say, is it only self-talk, Paul? Is that, is that the secret? Well, that certainly is one of the big secrets. That gives you the key. What you do with that key is what is going to define your future next. So if you tell yourself, hey, wait a minute, voice, you can give your voice a name. I can call my voice, um, John. Hey, John, you know, you know what? Back off, John. Just back off right now. I've got this. I know you're telling me I can't do it, but guess what? I got the key right here and I'm going to take some action. So you follow that thought with action and belief. And the more that you do this, the more that you become your own liberator and the voices in your head, they start to, uh, the negative voices in your head start to quiet down. So that's what I mean by becoming a hostage to yourself. And there's so many different techniques that are involved in this that can make you into a real achiever and someone who doesn't listen to the negativity that filters through our heads. And we all 
experience it at some point, Sam. Uh, how we deal with it is what defines our future. And today, we see so many people who are anxious and depressed and suicidal because they're giving in to those voices. And those voices are lying. They're lying to you. You are not unworthy. You are worthy. And it is a matter of training the brain. But what does it take to start believing that inner voice when you're consciously making the shift to make it a more positive one? Everybody is different, obviously. So what works for one person may not work for another. But I think it's more than, uh, you know, simply thinking the positive thoughts, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. There are times, and I encourage this uh, to so many people, is that we really need to examine our lives. And we should do that every couple of weeks, you know, to very, at the very beginning. On a Sunday or when you, whenever you have some spare time, you take a sheet of paper out on the, uh, you, you put a line right through it and you say, okay, on the left is what, what is not working on my life, in my life, and on the right, what is working on my life. And you be brutally honest with yourself. And then you, you make this list out and you take a look at it and you say, okay, Am I happy with this? You know, I'm, I'm feeling like I can't move forward. Am I happy with that? Am I truly happy with that? If you answer yes, something wrong. You know, um, maybe you do need to talk to somebody about what your, your mind is telling you. But if you say, I'm not happy with this, okay? Uh, I need to change this. That is the first step. The awareness that things are not working in your life. Now, mm-hmm. why? Why aren't they not working uh, for us? Now, Einstein, um, he said, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Well, when you start to talk to yourself positively, you're already starting to shift your mind. So you take a look at this list that you've made. What's not working in my life now? How can I improve this? Is it a relationship? Is it my thoughts? What can I do? All right. Maybe I can start um, meditation. I can start to... uh, to start my day off with a mantra and not enough of us do this, Sam, Uh, not enough of us make a conscious decision in the morning to choose an attitude that works for us. When you start to program your mind on a daily basis, you'll be amazed um, by following that with action and action being whatever works for you. Mm, So important. And I love that it starts with awareness, but it doesn't end there. It's followed by action. And when we take action, either, you know, if, if other people are involved or it's a change that we maybe need to make uh, solo within our own life, I often find that negotiation is a critical component of that change. Again, whether we're negotiating with others, perhaps even more often with ourselves, we have kind of combating ideas or beliefs or opinions or desires there's this notion of being on or having different sides when it comes to negotiating that I think can sometimes trigger conflict, uh, either internally or otherwise. And so how do we go about resolving conflict in those moments where we want to make the change, but we're just not sure, you know, if we're willing to commit? This is where, you know, the, uh, the hammer meets the nail. Uh, you have got to want it bad enough. And what I see people is that I've got a guitar in in my room here. Uh, And Sam, it's been with me for probably 20 years. I've carried it everywhere. Do I know how to play it? 
no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll strum a couple of uh, chords and, you know, maybe, you know, get my way through half a song or something like that. But And the reason that I don't know how to play it is because I don't want it bad enough. And we've got to tell ourselves that we want to deal with our internal conflict bad enough that we are, um, we've got to stop digging. See, people are digging a hole, they, you know, digging a hole of anxiety, digging a hole of depression. They keep digging and digging and digging. Number one, you've got to stop. You've got to put the, the shovel down and you got to say, okay, you know, I, I, I may be deep into the hole, but there is a way out because I choose to, and I want it bad enough. So this is where that dialogue in your head, that monologue in your head needs to be one that you believe in and that you want bad enough to change. And I believe that each and every one of us can change if we want it bad enough. Sometimes people uh, they they lose themselves in in their circumstances and they become acclimatized to their lives. And by by that I mean it's almost like learned helplessness. You know, you're 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 living in an environment. You think, okay, well, this is all there is. You know, like I'm living in an abusive home. Uh, you know, or I'm I, I'm having a relationship with somebody who's very toxic. But uh, you know what? It is a relationship, and I, it's going to get better tomorrow. And um, you know what? It's, it's okay. You know, if I left, uh, oh, I, I have, I'm afraid to leave because I don't know what's out there. Uh, maybe there isn't somebody out there for me. That's just one example. We start to tell ourselves all these things. Hey, this is my life. You know, this is where I, I'm at. And that's why I say that self-examination component. Take a look at your life. What's not going right? Well, I'm in this toxic relationship. Is that good for me? No. Do I want out? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you can see that conflict. So be your your own superhero. Uh, don't wait to be rescued because a lot of us, a lot of people are waiting for the magic pill or someone to reach over and rescue them. When in fact, rescue doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. It comes from the work that you do to rescue yourself. That's where it comes from. So uh, dealing with, with your internal conflict is like dealing with uh, outside conflict that you may have with a person. It is an opportunity to create a bridge out of where you are to where you want to go. So deal with that conflict by finding the courage to take the action necessary to get you out. You see, we're going, we cannot avoid conflict. It's going to happen. And uh, we have two choices. Do we see conflict as something that we want to avoid, or do we see conflict as something that could create opportunity and build bridges? Mm. It's, an op it's an opportunity to understand uh, another person's point of view, uh, to have them open up to us, and then for us to open up uh, to them. And when we recognize that uh, the person sitting across from us is more similar than we are different, we try to put ourselves in their shoes. It's amazing what, what doors we can open if only we have the courage to do so. And it does take courage to step into conflict. Uh, but when you start to look at it as opportunity, it, it's how you speak. It's your body language. It's your, you know, it, it's not talking first. It's letting the other person speak first, you know, uh, and, and just standing up to it and mm -hmm. with a different mindset. And so valuable, especially given these times, I mean, you and I were speaking before we hit record. It's, 
we're in a world where, I mean, communication has always been important, but in a time where it can feel very, very divisive and very us versus them, I think a little communication is going to go a long way. I believe you're right. Um, I know that the way in which you present yourself to another human being can make all the difference. Uh, my life was saved by a terrorist in the Middle East, and, and I was about to be killed um, by 40 terrorists. My partner and I were surrounded. We were being beaten. And one terrorist stepped in to save my life. And when I looked back at this, hey, he saved my partner's life too. But when I looked back at it, it was because of the, of the way that I had treated him on earlier occasions. And it, that, that is not an isolated story. I've had, uh, you know, hardened criminals turn around and help me out and come to my rescue, believe it or not. And that was because of the way that I had spoken to them, because of the way that I had treated them. I had uh, murderers confess to me, rapists confess to me. And again, people say, well, how do you get these confessions? And I said, well, it's the way in which I treat them. You know, I'm treating a person here. I'm talking to a person here. I'm not keeping the, what they've done, uh, you know, at the forefront. And sometimes that's what we do. If somebody has harmed us or whatever, we, we look at the action. Well, you hurt me. You said this, you said that. Well, put the action aside for a moment. What's going on in that person? You know, like, why not talk to the person first and bring the action out later and talk mm -hmm. about that? Once they get to know you, like you, and trust you, once you get to understand each other, then you can talk about what grievances you may have, but you can do it in a respectful and loving way. And it's interesting you bring up liking, knowing, and trusting a person. These are terms that I often hear through the lens and filter of business and less from um, connecting on a person-to-person -person level. And I think, you know, now more than ever, they go hand in hand. I mean, we're, we're people at the end of the day. On that topic of business, I mean, you bring these incredible stories, the emotion, the lessons into the workplace. You use hostage negotiation principles with your own four-step peer negotiating model. Can you give us a high-level explanation of how that model and, and this thinking works in a business setting? I can. And not only does it work in a business setting, it works in a life setting. Uh, my Even peer better. Oh, I know. <laughs> Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Now, my peer negotiating uh, um, tool is, is really peer is P-I-E-R. Imagine yourself standing on a pier looking at a vast ocean, okay? So that's the peer. The P in peer stands for planning. And in anything that you want to succeed in life, if you don't plan, you're kind of leaving it to chance, right? We all know that if you don't, uh, if you don't plan, you, you plan to fail. Uh, we've heard that before, but it is so true. When, when you're planning um, to meet someone or, or to go out on a date, and I kind of I, I tell people, imagine your business negotiations as, as you know, you're getting ready to go out on a date, okay? So how do you plan for that date? You, well, you plan on how you're going to dress. You plan on where you're going to go. You plan, you plan every detail out. So in negotiations, in life, when you plan, you have a higher degree of succeeding. You have a, a higher chance to succeed. So plan. Now, the I in, in peer is for your intent. What is your intent? If your intent is based only on what you want, you've got less of a chance of getting it. Now, let's go back to the dating, uh, the dating scenario that I gave. If your intent is, is just focused on you, you're going to do all the talking and try to impress whoever it is with you and da 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 And guess what? They're going to see that your intent is not on them. They're going to see that you are not authentic, that you are not genuine, that you're only about yourself. So 
determine what your intent is. Is my intent here to really get to know this person, to really get to know this business person's needs, to get to know whether or not we're a good match? So I, I've planned, uh, here it is, my meeting with the person. I've, you know, My intent is based on them. Okay, the E now, that's on entrance. Entrance and engagement. They talk about um, making a, a good first impression. When you make a good first impression, the chances of, of connection are, are much higher. So again, you planned, you dressed well, your intent is on them, you walk, uh, you know, you first meet them and, you know, we can't shake hands right now, but we certainly can greet ourselves warmly. We can show an interest, you know, we can engage them. What does that equal? That equals the R, which is relationship. And when you have relationship, you can ask for just about anything you want in life. When somebody knows you, likes you, and trusts you, you can ask for just about anything in life. And and peers, what gets you there? Mm, yeah, I love that. Anyone who knows me knows that I am a sucker for acronyms. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think that's great. It's easy to follow. It's memorable. Seems super powerful. I can't wait to give it a try, but I got a question for you. Yep. If we're considering intent and we're considering engaging others, how do we not lose ourselves in that process if we're making it so much about the other person? We never forget about, about ourselves. You know, um, communication is a two-way street. The intent, yes, is on the other person. But it is when you collaborate, when you connect, that then you have an opportunity. You've made it about them, yeah, knowing what you want out of the transaction as well. But when the person, you know, you make it about them, they start to tell you what their wants, needs, and desires are. And you start to look for those commonalities. And then you, once you make that connection, then it's okay for you then to say, okay, this is what I would like out of this. How can we work together, you know, to, uh, to reach an agreement that works for both of us? Because mm. you, you never want to forget. You don't want to focus on the out outcome. Focusing on the outcome prevents you from enjoying the journey. And, and, you never know what you first intended on getting something richer may come out of it. As a hostage negotiator, my intent was to uh, save uh, the lives of, of the hostages that were taken and also to save the life of the hostage taker. But I really had to negotiate in their world to get to understand where they're coming from. And it was only then when I said, okay, what's really going on inside? And it's like business, you know, what is it that you really need? What is it that you want to accomplish here? Um, what is it that, you know, that you're afraid of? What is it that you want? And it's amazing when people feel that you are listening and that you are understanding, then, you know, they open up, well, I'm afraid of, of getting killed if I, if I leave this if I leave this place, you guys are going to shoot me. Your sniper is going to shoot me. And that's when you say, hey, come on, you know, I'm going to help you through this, you know, that kind of thing. So my intent was to get them out, but I'm really focused on the journey. I want to really, I want to get to the layers of what the person really wants and needs. And then I want to bring out what I want and what I need and how we can collaborate together to get it. So that I, I think is, is so valuable uh, again, you make it on them because you want to validate them. You want, you want them to know that you hear them, you understand them, and you want to work with them. Then you can bring out your desires, you know, into the, in, into the picture and start to talk about that, you know. And by then, you've, they've gotten to know you, they've gotten to like you, and now they get to trust you. And that's how magic happens. 
So what have you done in those moments where you've built their trust? And, you know, if their fear is being taken away, losing their family, sentenced to prison, and the reality is that 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 is a likely outcome, how do you maintain that trust knowing that perhaps the next step is exactly what they fear? I have to be honest with them. You know, and, and I have to tell them that that I, I really believe in them again. Um, let's take, for example, somebody who's committed a murder. You know, the first thing they do, they've got their their arms crossed, their legs crossed, and they've, you know, my lawyer told me not to say anything, and I'm not talking to you. Well, that's okay. You know, that's, that's your right. You don't have to talk to me, but I just want to let you know that my name is Paul, and may I call you John? And uh, I'm here just to find out what happened. And I'm not here to judge you, not here to find you guilty of anything. I just want to hear what went on. But before we get to that, I don't even know who you are. You know, I see this paper with your, your criminal record, but that doesn't tell me who you really are as a person. May I just have a few moments of your time just to get to know who you are as a person? And then when you remind, you know, in the case of talking to a murderer, for example, not everybody is bad, you know, and, and what they did, what the bad thing that they did isn't necessarily who they are, you know, it is something that they've done, but it may not be them. Remind people, you know what, there's still some good in you, you're doing the right thing, you know, like there's, there's a reason, you know, that, that you could talk to me and that all this kind of stuff. So it really is about being honest, you know, John, what you did was wrong, you know, it really was, and there is a consequence to this. But, you know, the fact that you are opening up and the fact that you are now taking this step, I think people are going to listen to that in court. You know, what you just told me this, you know, you've told me everything. You're helping the family out. You're, you're taking accountability. You're taking responsibility for what you've done. So guess what? People are going to notice what you're doing. And uh, I can't say if that's going to influence the outcome of, uh, of your sentencing, but it certainly isn't going to hurt. It sounds like you've lived many lives. I have. Goodness, I could just talk to you all day. I'm excited <laughs> to shift gears a little bit. You've got a second book coming out. It seems you are just an endless well of knowledge. Can you tell us a little bit what the book is about? Well, my second book has been written and it has yet to be published. And it really is about negotiation and the peer principle. It's really about um, asking for more out of life and how do you get more out of life? And it really is about uh, taking care of yourself and taking care of the other person and how you can build relationships. I've got another book that I'm actually in the process of writing. And this one is about how we deal with our mindset during these pandemic times and how we can really shift and, and reset ourselves uh, to be stronger than we were before. And so, yeah, that's, that's my, I'm passionate about this project because um, from the podcast that I've done, I've talked to some amazing people who have been a world of information and I'm putting their content into this book and they are brilliant. Much, some of them are a lot more brilliant than I am and what they've got to say needs to be put down on paper. My goodness. Where can we get our hands on a copy of Take Control of Your Life? Find out when your new books are coming out and connect with you after this episode airs. Well, most bookstores in North America had my book uh, in stock, uh, but now uh, Take Control of Your Life is uh, available online. You know, you can find it anywhere. And as for the second one, um, it's called Damn It, Just Ask. Uh, I am in the process of uh, talking to uh, Harper Collins about, um, you know, whether they're interested in, uh, in 
publishing it or whether I'm going to self-publish because they are my publisher for my first book. Wonderful. And where can we connect with you to continue to learn and keep up with what it is you're doing next? Well, thank you, Sam. Um, I have a website, two websites that uh, I encourage you to go to. Uh, the first is uh, jpaulnadeau.com, and that's just J-P-A-U-L-N-A-D-E-A-U.com. And that will give you uh, an insight into some of my background and my book. And my second website is called inspireus.ca. So inspireus.ca. And that's the one about my podcast and my amazing guests and what they have to contribute to this world. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been such a pleasure having you. Sam, thank you. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.